Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Last week, we talked to Roy Meals, an orthopedic surgeon who told us all about the biology and chemistry of our bones. And this week, we talked to Kermit Patterson. He's a journalist who for 10 years has followed the story of the people who discovered R.D., arguably our oldest human ancestor. He'll tell us about what bones can tell us about what it means to be human and how we evolved into the people that we are today. Kermit Patterson, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be with you. So this is the second episode in a two-part series we are doing about bones. Uh, Last week, we interviewed Roy Meals, who's an orthopedic surgeon who wrote a book about bones. And we talked about the composition and the chemistry and the cellular construction and just the basic biology of bones. And it was really fascinating. But we skipped out on the evolution and the cultural and historical significance. So I'm really excited to cover that with you. Oh, well, I'm glad to be here. Yes, this is the deep history of bones. Yeah, and, and, and essentially sort of how bones are the tools that scientists use to answer arguably the f- most fundamental question of where we came from. So I want to start with bones, <laughs> and uh, in particular, the bones of one particular individual, Artie, um, because, you know, for, for a lot of our listeners, they're probably around my age, which means they probably heard about the discovery of Artie and then, uh, but didn't read about it in textbooks, because it seems to have only hit the textbooks in the last decade, and so might not realize the significance. Um, so let's start with what what the the skeleton sort of is and, um, you know, what she revealed. Okay. So, yeah, who who was Artie? Uh, Artie is the name of a single skeleton. It is 4.4 million years old. It was found in Ethiopia in the Afar Depression. Uh, Artie is the nickname of the individual. The species that she belongs to is called Artipithecus ramidus. Artipithecus is the genus and ramidus is the species. So, you know, like we are Homo sapiens, genus Homo, species sapiens. You know, it's the same system of nomenclature, Artipithecus ramidus. And Artie is just that that individual's nickname. And she got the nickname because she was, lo and behold, a very complete skeleton 
and skeletons of that age are quite rare. The famous Lucy skeleton, a lot of your listeners have probably heard of, um, she was found less than 50 miles from where Artie was found. Uh, she is 3.2 million years old. So Artie is 1.2 million years older than Lucy and contains a lot of body parts that Lucy lacked, like hands and feet in particular, and skull. And so how do they find her? So this there's a long detective story, <laughs> and that's you know accounts for why my book is so long. Uh, there's a long detective story about uh, the quest and the discovery and then the interpretation. But uh, I'll just tell you a bit about the, act, the, the, the physical act of searching. So when paleoanthropologists or fossil hunting teams, you could say, go into this part of Africa, they go there for one big reason. It is a very productive area for finding fossils. So the Afro Depression where uh, these bones were found, it's kind of in the northern end of the Great Rift Valley system. So the Great Rift Valley is basically a big, you know, a big valley that's created by the separation of two continental plates. And when they, uh, and this is, you know, part of continental drift, you've probably all remember from your textbooks, but when those plates separate, a kind of trough forms, a valley at, at the point of, of, of separation. And in this low-lying you know, sedimentary basins, you know, sediments just stack up on top of each other over millions of years. And in those sediments, bones of, you know, creatures get fossilized. And because of the volcanics there, there's, you know, certain aspects in the soil that encourages the uh, fossilization. You know, in other habitats, like in forests and stuff, the soils are such that um, they're really acidic and bones tend to degrade. But in this part of the world, that doesn't happen. Uh, stuff tends to be preserved. So the reason you hear a lot about the Rift Valley is not that it was necessarily, you know, some primordial Eden where, you know, humans were born. It's instead the place where their remains are best preserved. So that's why you hear so much about the Great Rift Valley. This particular area has been really productive for fossils since the 1970s. And indeed, as I mentioned, Lucy came from there. She was found in 1974. So for a long time, the question was, well, what came before Lucy? And that quest to find older fossils was uh, ran into a number of roadblocks. Uh, one was the situation in Ethiopia. So right around the time Lucy was discovered, Ethiopia erupted a revolution. The Emperor Haile Selassie, this ancient 2,000-year-old monarchy, fell. Uh, he was replaced by a um, military dictatorship called the Derg, uh, and Ethiopia then suffered through a very bloody, sad, violent period. Um, and during that time, it either was, in some cases, too dangerous to go out in the field and do the field work, or uh, in some cases, uh, for a number of years, the government banned fossil expeditions by foreigners. So it wasn't really, there was a little work that was done in the early 80s, uh, at least in this particular area where Artie was found, uh, the Middle Awash, they took one expedition in 1981 and spent enough time there to realize that this particular area was really rich and actually offered the potential to find something older than Lucy. But then, you know, no sooner had they done that sort of initial reconnaissance than they went back the next year to really you know, start doing the hard searching, the systematic searching. And on the eve of departure, 
<laughs> into the field, the government said, sorry, you can't go. We're suspending research. And it remained suspended for another nine years. Uh, so anyway, it wasn't until the 1990s that these people could go back and resume the search. And uh, in 1992, they found uh, the first pieces of this older species. And then in 1994, they kind of hit the jackpot with the skeleton. So that's kind of the big framework for you know, how the research question was framed and you know, some of the big picture hardships. I can tell you more about how fossils are actually found at kind of a boots on the ground level, if you're interested. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm totally interested, and maybe we will get back there. But I, I I'm also there's so much to cover, and I I kind of wanted to focus a little bit on, um, you know, some of the ways in which already was surprising and why it took 15 years for scientists to accept the findings. So can we talk a little bit? So so now so let's assume the the skeleton has been found. Why wasn't it unveiled uh, until 2009? There's a couple pieces of that answer. Um, some of it is the uh, difficulty of find, you know, of actually getting things out of the ground and then putting the skeleton back together. And then some of it is just the time to study. Um, but I'll take them one by one. So the first is just like the physical recovery. It, uh, so the first pieces of this thing were found in 1990, uh, 1994. And, uh, but it, when people find fossils, especially in this type, in this part of the world, it's not like you just stumble upon it and there is a nice articulated skeleton, you know, laid out on the ground, you know, waiting there for you. I mean, uh, this, <laughs> it, it, you know, what happens is these, these skeletons get buried. They're buried for millions of years, and then they kind of erode out of the ground piece by piece. So with already, you know, they found, you know, a little hand bone at first, and then, you know, started crawling, like literally crawling through the area and doing some sieving, you know, where they're taking up like the, the surface soil and sieving it and then finding more pieces. And, you know, slowly the the, the suspicion dawns that there's multiple elements of an individual here, and maybe there's a skeleton buried somewhere nearby. And so they do the detective story or detective work, and finally, you know, locate this one spot and start digging. And sure enough, there's a collection of bones. But it's not an articulated skeleton; it's just a jumble of bones. And initially, it's not even certain that it's one individual. It could just be, you know, a collection of individuals. So the actual excavation took three years. Uh, it was in the first season that the team, and I, and I should mention, this is called uh, the Middle Awash Research Project is, is the team. It was in the first year they realized, holy cow, this is one individual, but then they had to go back uh, this, uh, the next year and then to, you know, to dig up more bones. And then a third year uh, where they continued the excavation and didn't find anything more the third year. So that told them they had pretty well exhausted the site. You know, they had milked it for what it was worth. But, uh, okay, so now you have all these broken pieces and, um, you know, some of them require a great deal of reconstruction, like the skull. So Tim White, who was the um, one of the main paleoanthropologists on the team, he was telling me the skull didn't come out of the ground like a skull you would see, you know, in a museum. It came out of the ground like something crushed, like by a pile driver. It was about an inch and a half tall <laughs> in a block of soil. So... So that is in many, many pieces that have to be reconstructed. The pelvis is you know, all ground up. There are all these pieces that have to be put back together. And then uh, for the skeleton 
to actually look like a skeleton. So that's that's the physical part of it. And is that something that like Tim White does? Like he gets a P or like is it a, his grad students? Like, you know, who? who... Well, in this in this instant, it was indeed Tim. Tim is a very exacting guy. You know, I he knew, you know, as a student, as a very keen student of this stuff, that this was like a historic find. And so he <laughs> he was not going to let anyone else do this. He He was going to do this part of it himself. You know, with some other pieces, other members of the team, or with some other discoveries, other members of the team have done them. In some cases, you know, some discoveries are used as training for students or for Ethiopian lab workers, and and other people, you know, get a crack at it. But in this instance, it was all Tim, uh, at least in like the physical, the physical part. Uh, and so then there's another 15 years of study, and that involves you know reconstructing it, uh, doing CT scans, you know, sending the um, fossils to Tokyo so they can be uh, scanned in a high power CT machine in a lab of uh, a Japanese scientist named Gensua, who is a member of this team. Um, but this is actually was one of the more controversial aspects of this discovery. And uh, because initially, you know, the hope that uh, the team was saying, well, we hope to publish this thing in about five years, which is, you know, in, in most people's eyes, like a a reasonable time to uh, publish a major discovery like this. Well, it wound up taking about three times as long uh, for both because of the arduousness of the task, the fact that they're still going back to the field during this whole time and making other major, major discoveries. And, you know, and also because already is turning out to be a lot more of an involved investigation than anyone anticipated. But yeah, this is hugely controversial because you know, this, the, the scientific community had been told that this skeleton is at, you know, the roots of humanity. It's even named for the AFR yeah, word for root. And um, other scientists want to crack at this thing. They want to see it. They want it to uh, be able to work it into their own, you know, investigations. And uh, this became a huge point of contention between this team and some others in the scientific community. I mean, given that ultimately the sort of structure of the skeleton, which is what's used to kind of um, create images of what this individual would have looked like, um, was so surprising and so unexpected. Is there any subjectivity that comes into putting these skeletons back together? Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, there's there's certainly expertise. Uh, I mean, there, there's some, I mean, some parts are, are no-brainers, like to put the hand together you know the, the, the skeleton was pretty broken, but actually the hands and feet were in relatively good shape because this, the hand hand and foot bones tend to be small and they kind of get squeezed out squeezed out and not as as kind of ravaged by the by the contractions of the soil. But the long bones tended to suffer more. The big bones and the skull, as I mentioned, got kind of crushed. But like the hands and the feet, they were um, uh, they could almost. I mean, after a little cleaning, they could actually reassemble a little hand skeleton and a little foot skeleton, uh, you know, within the first year or two. But then the other parts, like the pelvis, for example, had a lot of damage to it. Now, the pelvis is a really informative part of the body for understanding locomotion or how creatures move. And this was really important for Artie because she was kind of a transitional creature in some ways. Uh, as they later discovered, she was a climber, like you know, a lot of other primitive apes. 
uh, she had an opposable toe, you know, long fingers, or at least longer than humans for climbing. But she also appeared to walk upright, which is, it, it, so she's kind of a strange hodgepodge of, of traits that science had just never seen before. And so the pelvis, it's, it's often called the keystone of locomotion because it's kind of where all these different systems kind of meet. And it's kind of this Congress where all these, all these compromises have to be made, these compromises between locomotion and childbirth or the compromise between climbing and be, in the trees and being a biped on the ground. So the pelvis, you know, there, there was a, some anatomy there that signaled biped. Uh, and there was some other anatomy there that signaled climber, you know, some muscle attachments for climbing muscles. Um, but uh, some of that reconstruction did involve, yes, yeah, some interpretation. And that that is somewhat controversial too, uh, because, um, you know, like with Lucy's pelvis, for example, um, Lucy was in much better condition and a couple of different people reconstructed her pelvis and they came up with very different answers depend, based on their... Um, the assumptions they made, you know, putting the pieces back together. Hmm. So what is the, the scientific process involved in figuring out who's right? Well, <laughs> I, I think it is the same for a lot of other scientists, which is uh, a lot of debate. I mean, we're still certainly in the, in the middle of that. Although the debate, some, some parts of the debate have, have, I think, settled down and some things that used to be extremely controversial are, are less so now. But how do they work this out? Well, I think this is just a process of scientific self-correction. You know, a hypothesis is made. Other people challenge it. Um, and then, you know, at the end, everyone repeats this mantra, we need more fossils. And then, you know, hopefully someone <laughs> finds more fossils and then they either, you know, affirm or refute one side or the other, or they'll realize that they're all asking the wrong questions, which also happens and sort of, <laughs> and, uh, and realize that some of the old debates are now moot. <laughs> so, so it, it longs, Long story short, it's just sort of the typical process of self-correction and a lot of people, blindfolded people, feeling different parts of the elephant. So let's talk a little bit about um, some of her characteristics. You mentioned there's this this bizarre um, combination of being both a climber and potentially a biped, um, which is weird. Uh, and then the photo, you have this beautiful drawing in your book uh, that I literally is like, etched into my brain. I can't get it out of my head. It's so different from a chimpanzee. It doesn't look to me at all like a chimpanzee, which I think was probably surprising to a lot of people. Yeah, that's a, that's a drawing done by a, uh, an artist named uh, Jay Maternus, who's one of the, the great anatomical artists. But uh, So it's not mine, just, just to... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I figured you probably didn't draw it. <laughs> yeah, but, no, no but, believe uh, me. Yeah, yeah, thank you for crediting Yeah, yeah, him. no, you would not. Um, uh, so yeah, she, she is this strange combination of features, or strange to us. You know, someday I think it 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 will not be strange. You know, once Artie is sort of integrated into our understanding, and, and she'll be no more strange than like in Neanderthal is strange. But yeah, she she uh, there had never been a member of the human family found before with a opposable toe. And actually, this was one of the first major revelations of Artie is that they the Right after the uh, first field season, they bring the you know the skeleton back to the lab at Ethiopia. In most cases, they don't really have a good idea of what they have because you know I mean Tim Tim White who was he's kind of leading this this particular part of the field operation. 
you know, he told me, he said, like, you don't, you don't spend any time in the field interpreting because it's dangerous. You got limited daylight. You got people running around with guns. You got, you know, security issues. You just, your, your job is just to rescue the material from the field, bring it back to the lab safely, and then you can continue the rescue operation in the controlled environment of the lab. So it's just bad to waste too much time on, you know, pondering what you have in the field. It's just, you know, extract, extract, extract. That's the big mantra in the field. So they don't really know too much about what they have when they get back. So in the closing hours before catching his plane out of Ethiopia, Tim had time to clean just one bone. And so he picked this one particular bone of the foot that he knew would be informative on this question about whether or not this creature had an opposable toe. And uh, he spent some time cleaning it and then, you know, um, very quickly uncovered a kind of a rounded joint or cylindrical joint that told him that there was a mobility in this toe that was similar to what like a chimp has or gorilla has. And that was a big wow. So, uh, so yeah, she had this, um, you know, so that clearly means she's a boreal, but then they were seeing other things that were signaling biped, upright biped. For example, there was another part of the pelvis called the anterior inferior iliac spine, which is kind of a mouthful, but basically it's a part of the structure of the pelvis that's unique to bipeds and it anchors, it's kind of this protrusion of this bump on the front of your pelvis and it anchors some of your thigh muscles. And, you know, we human bipeds have it, you know, fossil bipeds have it, but the apes, you know, arboreal apes really don't, or, 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 or at least it's very subtle and already had a prominent one. So that, you know, so even as they're seeing this signal of like an opposable toe that signals climber, they're also seeing this other stuff like this part of the pelvis that's signaling upright walker. So, and, and you know, these kind of revelations were continuing in slow motion over, over many years. Um, and gradually this picture is coming into view of this hodgepodge creature, this, this sort of, uh, this con- this conglomeration of anatomy in in a combination that had never been seen before. Across America, BP supports more than two hundred and seventy five thousand jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In your book, you spend a lot of time and do a great job kind of bringing the, the character of Tim White to life, uh, all of his, and, and just his, his relentless pursuit and, uh, of science, even to the detriment of his own sort of politics and career and, and, and so forth. And I, I wondered, as I, you know, I kept, as I kept reading that, um, I wondered if, if perhaps the fact that he was so, he wanted to get the science so right, and he was so, you know, or he is, so I, I mean, I, I speak to him as if he's not around anymore, he is, right? <laughs> um, but that might explain also in part why, for a long time, uh, no one else had, had you know, had, had a chance to, to see the skeleton and come to their own conclusions, and therefore that it was kind of ignored by a big um, portion of the scientific community. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the reasons why it was ignored and also, uh, you know, tied into that, why it's sort of over overturning some of the textbook notions that we had 10 years ago. Yeah. Well, well Tim, Tim is, he's a very strong character. Uh, he is probably one of the more intense people I've ever met in my life. And that plays out in the story in two ways. One is he's extremely dedicated to his, his science and extremely devoted to the fieldwork and extremely mindful of the fieldwork and, you know, and, and extremely mindful of team too. I mean, so Tim is not, he's made a very deliberate choice in his career not to make a celebrity out of Tim White. He has made a very deliberate effort to build a team around him. And that includes, you know, uh, Ethiopians who, you know, in generations past have really not been integrated in the science. That's changing. But, you know, when this story begins, um, there's a lot of resentment on the part of the Ethiopians that these foreign scientists are not investing time to train Ethiopians and build their lab facilities and stuff like that. So Tim puts, has put a lot of energy into building the team, training people, and all the field work. And you know he's a very intense guy in the field. And he, you know, if he doesn't, if you're doing something wrong or doing something that jeopardizes the operation, I mean, he'll be on you just like a whip crack. I mean, a lot of ways he kind of reminds me of like a special forces commander <laughs> as more than like, a, you know, a, a, than an academic. Um, but in this part of the world, that's the kind of personality that can be successful. I mean, there's no shortage of things that can put you out of business in Ethiopia. I mean, there's tribal warfare going on. There's all these tumultuous politics that we were talking about. Uh, you know, there's... Um, politics of of uh antiquities department where you know some if you displease the wrong person you can get your permit revoked there are and then there's just the physical hardship of working in this part of the world where it's hard to get water you know it's hot it gets up you know well over 100 degrees um there's wild animals um you know it takes a lot to be successful there uh so yeah so i think his drive has been you know one reason why he and his partners have been successful there. Uh, that same intensity, um, which is you know well adapted to the field, is not so well adapted for the more collegial world of academia. So Tim and some of his colleagues, like uh, you know, are not always known for their diplomacy, uh, and uh, and so I, I think 
And, and I mean, this is a long story to, to explain, but you know, Tim has done a number of things over the years that have offended, ruffled feathers, sometimes ref, ruffled feathers in powerful people. And uh, when the skeleton finally came out, it was controversial. And some of that was the Inter, you know, due to the interpretation they had made. Some of it was due to just the surprising nature of the fossil, but some of it was just personal rancor, you know, and that had accumulated over the years. I mean, and, you know, in, in the book, there's a number of people that made that observation, you know, on, you know, without hesitation. Um, and, uh, you know, for example, one, there's one person in the book, a prominent scientist who said, yeah, Artie will be accepted someday, there's no doubt, but Tim has to leave the scene first. <laughs> Because, because people don't want to acknowledge, you know, that their their reaction to the fossil is, you know, wound up in the personal politics. So when Artie does become accepted, and now all the textbooks get rewritten, what is going to be which is slowly happening? Yeah, yeah. So what is going to be that change? What what is different in terms of our understanding of human evolution today as a result of Artie compared with what we thought or what was written in the textbooks at least uh, before two thousand nine? Yeah, well, well, the big change, in, in which no one can deny, is that now there's something in this, what used to be a blank spot in the fossil record, you know, th that, okay, so there's this, this skeleton already, which is 4.4 million years old, but there were actually numerous pieces of many other individuals that were found, uh, you know, of the Artipithecus rambitus species. You know, maybe over, over here, it's like an arm bone, or over here, it's like a set of teeth, or a, you know, partial arm, you know, over here, but, but, there's now dozens of individuals who are, you know, none as complete as the skeleton, but there's this huge, a, a, actually a pretty good picture of what was going on, at least in this part of Ethiopia, 4.4 million years ago. And there also was this major ecological reconstruction that went along with this. Um, so they were going back year after year and not only picking up, you know, the fossils of, you know, these primitive members of the human family, but picking up everything, you know, the ancient baboons, the ancient elephants, the ancient fish, crocodiles. There's this huge menagerie of creatures who are now in the National Museum in Ethiopia. And uh, so as a, as a consequence, there's a really high resolution picture of this ancient ecosystem that already inhabited. So that's pretty rare. That's extremely rare. So what do we know is not before? We have a picture of what was happening at least in this one part of Africa at a point of time. So that's number one. Uh, number two, we have you know, a skeleton to put before Lucy. And you know, she's not what people expected. Um, she looks uh, not like a chimpanzee, uh, which was kind of like the, the model that people were putting in back when it was un unknown. You know, dude, chimpanzees are the closest human relatives. I mean, every, everyone knows that sometime in the deep past, humans descend from some kind of African ape. We know that because of the molecular work that's been done and the genetic work. But the question is, what kind of ape? What did that ape look like? Does it look like a modern ape or does it look like something we haven't seen before? And for a long time, you know, uh, a, a lot of people have sort of used the modern chimpanzee as kind of like a proxy for that last common ancestor. I mean, so you know, around the time the Artie was discovered, Jared Diamond, you know, the, the famous writer, had written a book called The Third Chimpanzee, and that title is basically means that there's you know two species of chimpanzee. There's a common chimp and the bonobo, 
and you know that humans are so close to those two that we could actually you know think of ourselves as a third chimpanzee okay so now they finally find a skeleton that's not quite at that split from the common ancestor it's not quite that old but it's getting close and it it differs from a chimpanzee in a lot of surprising ways there's no hint of knuckle walking like a chip doesn't have big canine teeth like a chimp. So in a lot of ways, it was um, kind of confounding some of the expectations that were made back when there was no fossil record. And we just had to use this proxy. Yeah. And I, I think it's sort of, uh, you know, given how old the, um, you know, the skeleton is, it, it, it's, and, and the fact that we can visualize it so beautifully from, as you described, there's all these other, you know, findings that are coming online too, it helps people understand that the tree of life, a metaphor is inaccurate. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, yeah, I think it helps with that visualization that, um, you know, like what, what I think you call it um, more like a, a, a spare cactus or a bush with many branches. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. So, so this, this was actually one of the challenging things about writing the, the book because, you know, the, the way the research question was framed at the outset of the investigation. The sci- you know, because this investigation went for so long, the science kind of changes underfoot. And there's a couple of things that changed. One was the estimation about when, when exactly the ancestors of humans split from the ancestors of chimps. And now I think the consensus is, is agreeing that it's probably older, deeper in the past than we, than we thought it was. So that's one. But the other thing that was kind of changing underfoot was this notion of the tree of life. And, you know, I mean, everyone can picture like the tree of life and shows the branching. And it's such a powerful metaphor for for Darwinian evolution and diversification of of forms. But, you know, because uh, molecular biology is showing that that (laughs) the splitting is actually a lot more complicated than what a simple tree would depict. And, you know, a simple tree... And I'll talk about two ways that that, that's true. You know, a simple tree just depicts, you know, a split between two species as a nice, simple fork in the road, you know. But sometimes the splitting actually stretches out over a long, 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 long time. And different parts of your genome may, in fact, have different evolutionary trees. Like, so in most of our genome, we're closest to the chimp. But in a smaller portion of the genome, we're actually closer to a gorilla, which is, you know, a, a... our next closest relative. And in some places we know we're equally related to both. And so it, it it's a really fine grained picture. Uh, that's number one. And then number two, sometimes when species split, they, you know, they get to a point where they look different enough so we can call them different species, but then sometimes they actually will, will interbreed again. And that's one of the revelations uh, that occurred in the last 10 years or so with um, Neanderthals, you know, for a long time, you know, Neanderthals look different enough from modern humans that, you know, every, everyone put them in a different species, or most people put them in a different species. Uh, and then, you know, in the early days of molecular science, there was a consensus that, you know, based on some of the earlier molecular findings, that Neanderthals were a dead end and that they were replaced by modern humans that came out of Africa. But now the molecular studies have advanced to the point where, um, they can see evidence of actually some interbreeding between those two things. So, you know, what we're calling different species are, are, are kind of re, are 
merging again. So back to our tree. So we have a fork in the tree here, but these branches are not remaining isolated. Sometimes there's like a, a little, you know, connection between branches. And so nowadays, uh, some people are kind of moving away from like a simple depiction of a tree and they're using other metaphors. Like it's, it's, a, it's a mesh or a lattice, you know, where these things will branch and then come back together. Now, eventually when species get more and more further apart, they don't, they cease to do that. I mean, that's, you know, so chimps and humans, you know, we we're now can certainly put them on, on isolated branches. But when you're in the early stages of, of speciation, it's, it's really can be quite messy. So the tree is not as simple as it as it uh, as we used to take for granted. So I, I want to um, with just a couple minutes we have left. I kind of want to end with another topic uh, that I think is really important to talk about when we talk about paleoanthropology, especially when there are discoveries in places like Ethiopia or on the, on the African continent. And you know, if, if you were writing a uh, Hollywood script, you'd probably would call your um, paleoanthropologist Doctor White. <laughs> You know, anyway, sorry, there's just, just the irony of like this story and yet how he was one of the uh, one of the people who started to really think about and include people, Ethiopians in the discipline. Um, and, and there's this that, you know, he has this postcolonial vision. Um, so I, I wondered if you could just tell us about that and what the future looks like uh, as as uh, the racism inherent in a lot of uh, paleoanthropology um, is 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 addressed. Okay. Uh, well, I'll start. I'll, I'll give you a, a picture of where we where, where this ended up, and that will tell you how much the science has changed. So I, I've been out uh, to visit this team uh, twice in the field, and uh, Tim now is the only. Well, both times that I was there, he was the only non-African. About three dozen people on the team, and so it's overwhelmingly Ethiopian now. Now, in some years, you know, there might be a Berkeley grad student or the, the occasional American scientist that goes out there, but but for the most part, it's uh, a team that's been Africanized, that's been Ethiopianized, uh, if you will. So, what happened? How did it wind up that way? Because that's not the image that a lot of people have when they think of, you know, the shows about fossil hunting. I mean, they you know they see. You know, a lot of times you watch those shows or documentaries, there's a lot of Europeans and Americans in there. Um, so, um, and this takes us back to the early days I was talking about when there was this resentment on the part of the Ethiopians about being excluded from the science. And, you know, the Ethiopians were perfectly willing to shut this science down and uh, unless the foreigners changed their behavior. And they did shut it down for about nine years, and they rewrote the antiquities regulations and so forth. So uh, one key guy in this whole thing is a fellow named Berhani Aswa. He was a Ethiopian who was one of Tim's students. Uh, he had suffered a lot during the, rev the years after the revolution. He was jailed, tortured, but survived miraculously. He goes on to grad school in Berkeley. Um, and uh, then when he's finished, he returns to Ethiopia to the surprise of a lot of people because the country was um, uh, in a lot of turmoil at that point. So, but he didn't you know, want to take a job in the US. He, you know, he wanted to go home and build the science. So he did. And they had a very 
uh, not an easy tenure there. I mean, it's quite controversial trying to build the science in Ethiopia. But uh, this team that, that Tim and Brahani were building made it a mission to train Africans or train Ethiopians in particular. Um, and that was a parallel mission that ran alongside the scientific investigation. And so uh, some of that was you know, worked on this team. Some of it was worked on in the National Museum when Brahani had it, was, he was director for the time. But now Ethiopia has you know, a decent sized cadre of indigenous scholars who are actually internationally known. I mean, they include archeologists, they include anthropologists, geologists. Um, so during my last visit to uh, Ethiopia, I sat down with the fellow there, named Jonas Desta, who was, who was the former um, head of this uh, agency that oversees antiquities research and oversees the museums. And he, he told me, he said, yeah, you know, I go, I talk to my colleagues at, in Kenya or Tanzania or South Africa, and they're all a little jealous. And they kind of lament. They said, we, we, we wish we had this kind of indigenous representation in the science in our country, but, but we don't yet. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that is uh, a, certainly a point of progress in Ethiopia. Um, you know, it's, I mean, there's a lot of controversy. You'd be surprised how much controversy there was even within Ethiopia as this was happening. I mean, with different political factions and fighting with each other and then the, you know, the foreign teams associated with this faction or that faction. So it's not, it's not a, uh, uh, a story of you know, everyone holding hands and marching together in progress. To, uh, but it's a really difficult history, actually. But, um, but the end result, you know, as you can see, there's at least one team that is very heavily Africanized. And you, know, you could ask yourself the question is, uh, you know, the fact that Artie is so uh, little known in this country, would that be different if it was discovered by a different team? I think the answer is probably yes. So where do we go from here? What do you think is the future of um, of Artie or this team, the fossil the fossil men as you describe them? Um, hopefully, including people of other genders <laughs> later on. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the 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 name. Yeah, I should explain the name. The name refers to a group of uh, the central characters in this story who all happen to to be to be men. Uh, certainly, there are women in the field. Um, but you know, this at least during the years here, this was a very you know, high testosterone kind of endeavor. Uh, so where, where is it going to go? Um, I think Artie will be integrated into the textbooks. I mean, and she already is. Uh, I think, you know, and the, particularly the younger generations, you know, they don't have the same, you know, resistance that some of the older people do. It will be integrated. It won't necessarily be integrated with the interpretation that was initially offered by the discovery team, but I think it uh, certainly the fossil will be integrated. You know, there is some controversy. I, I should mention this that uh, uh, on a couple of points. One is was already indeed a member of the human family. There's still some people who who are unconvinced of that because when you get this deep in the fossil record, the clues that sort of a lie that these creatures with us become much more subtle as you as these creatures become more ape-like it's um the clues become uh less obvious than they would be if 
you know, for a younger fossil. That's, so that's one. Another point of controversy is that there's some people who contend that actually Artie is not quite as unshimp-like <laughs> as the discovery team emphasized. So there will be some difference in interpretation, but I think Artie will, will become part of the fossil record that people just accept because it's discovered. And now these skeletons are rare. I mean, Artie was discovered now what, 26 years ago. Nothing, I mean, there's been other fossils found that are older. I mean, you know, some stuff in Kenya, some stuff elsewhere in Ethiopia, something in Chad, a nice skull from Chad, but they're not complete skeletons. So this stuff is pretty rare. And, um, you know, 25 years, nothing older has been found. Uh, you know, who knows when a skeleton will be found that's older. So I, I, I think, you know, Artie will stand and enter the science and become less controversial over, over time. I should tell you, though, that uh, it's going to be harder, at least in Ethiopia, to find this sort of stuff because you might have seen the news. The country is going into a big period of political turmoil here, and there's a lot of fear that you know it, it's, a, it's looking like civil war. I mean, everyone hopes that doesn't happen, but it, that makes it all that much harder to work in this area. So people should appreciate old skeletons because they do not come easily. And the opportunities to find them are rare. And in some cases, you know, the political conditions just make it make the work too dangerous to do. Um, so where does the science go from here? We hope it advances. But, you know, I, I just mentioned that so people understand that uh, there's a reason why these skeletons are so rare. They're hard to find. So I want to let our listeners know um, that Kermit Patterson's book, Fossil Men, The Quest for the Oldest Skeleton and the Origins of Mankind, uh, part detective novel, part scientific gossip column, part really in-depth look at the history of humanity, um, is available at booksellers everywhere. Uh, and it's it's really fascinating um, and a, a great read if you find yourself with a lot of time on your hands because you're not going anywhere for the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> it's the book for the pandemic, right? <laughs> yeah. Gorbit Patterson, thanks so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So that's it for another episode. Hope you enjoyed this two-part mini-series on Our Bones. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis, and I'll see you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.